Good afternoon. We're glad you've joined us again for our journey with Jesus in His journal. We're looking at the Word of God. We've spent a couple of days looking at uh, the first two messages. And uh, to remind you, the first one, we dealt with the fact that God loves us incredibly so much that nothing can separate us from His love. And we left you with one line, let the Lord be what? The love of your life. It looks like some of you forgot that. Let's say it again. Let the Lord be the love of your life. I realize some of you are still chewing, that's okay. <laughs> the second uh, time we got together, we talked about uh, the Bible, communicating in code, and we concluded that the key to the code is to what? Read. Good, you remember that one well. The key to the code is to read and heed. Let's pause just a moment before I share a story with you. Lord, speak now through me. Let only your love be seen. And Jesus Christ, in His name we pray. Amen. You've probably heard the story. Two classmates in Italy ended up in court recently. Seventy-plus gentlemen, seventy-plus years, was suing or taking his classmate to court. He was in his mid-seventies also. It was the atheist taking the priest to court. Heard the story? in Viterbo, Italy. And he took him to court because he was charging, he was saying that this man is claiming that Jesus existed and what's more, he works as a priest so he makes money off it because he gets paid. And the uh, 70-something-year-old friend, atheist, was saying Jesus never existed. So they took it to court. And last Friday, the judge handed down his decision and that is he threw the case out of court. Very interesting. And then he told the prosecutors that they should charge the atheist with slander. (laughs) Because he was slandering the priest. A very interesting story that comes to us from Italy right now. But that atheist hasn't given up, by the way. He is now taking his case to the European Union to have it arbitrated there. Fascinating. You know... We live right now in a situation where we are constantly facing uh, a a clashing of culture and faith. Uh, Here in the United States, we see that happening so frequently. And so, what are we going to do with all these problems? We have to make choices. Unfortunately, they are very difficult choices sometimes, where we find these two things conflicting with each other. But... The question has come up so many times, does God exist? That's the question. And in our culture nowadays, God has been pushed to the sidelines. In fact, fortunately, in the United, we live in the United States where something like 94% of people claim to believe in God. Now, if you lived in Europe, by the way, in Belgium, they did a study once of kids, teenagers, between 15 and 18, less than 4% actually believed in God. Less than 4%. Did you hear that? That's what they came up with. Less than 4%. So we are in a situation here where very, very few people, and of course here, culture versus faith. I saw this in the newspaper. A sociologist says, says he sees the end for traditional religion. And they say, culture has met faith in the United States. And you know what the conclusion is? Culture has won the battle. Serious times we're living in. But, you know what? 
we have hope. And that is, we can look at what's happened recently. Not now. You can turn it off. Thanks. We have looked at what's happened recently, and um, a well-known gentleman by the name of Anthony Flew has suddenly come up, and uh, people have known him for a long time, and because they've known him, he, he became big news. Anthony Flew, anybody heard of him? Let me see the hands. Oh, you haven't heard of him. One person, good. Then I can tell you the story about Anthony Flew. By the way, he was raised as a kid in a Methodist home. His father was a, a, a Methodist pastor. And for more than 50 years, he wrote books, he, uh, he taught, he traveled the world, and I'm not exaggerating, he was located there in Aberdeen, Scotland, but he came to the United States, Canada, Brazil, uh, Poland, Asia. He traveled all over the world promoting philosophical atheism. He became known as and regarded as the foremost and most influential of contemporary uh, representatives of philosophical atheism. Incredibly well-known. Dozens of books. But listen to this. A couple of years ago, three years ago, he says, it has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of evolution of that first reproducing organism. What? This is flu. Well-known um, atheistic believer. Then he carried on and he says, um, biologists have shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. He went further. One more thing he said. He said this, A superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. And in a nutshell, believe it or not, Anthony flew for more than 50 years, foremost believer in, not believer in God. They say he now believes in God, not the Christian God, but a minimalistic God. He's a kind of a deist. He says he, he cannot ignore the evidence. It's become big news. And in fact, the atheists and the evolutionists, frankly, are running scared. You know what they're saying? Oh, he's old. <laughs> what can you expect? The man is losing his mind. He's going off. But year after year, he's come out with more evidence, with more statements. And so, and this is Anthony Flew. There are people nowadays who are, and what does he say? People say, why do you, why have you changed your mind? This is what he said. I have lived by the dictum from Socrates that says, follow the argument where it leads. So he says, I've simply followed the argument. There is the evidence, which makes you think of Psalm chapter 19, right? But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 86. If you have it handy there, Psalm 86. I want you to look at this because this basically reiterates, Psalm 86 reiterates what we find in Psalm chapter 19. Now it's a huge topic today, so we're going to move pretty rapidly here. So I want you to try to keep with me. Psalm chapter 86 verse 10 I'm reading from the New King James Version. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Now somebody will say, yes, but this is written, uh, this is to the Jewish people. Is this only for the Jews? Go to the verse right before that. Notice what the verse before that says. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 
Obviously, this is not the God of the Jews only. In fact, you remember John 3.16, the well-known passage that says, God so loved the Jews, the world. That's right. That's the whole idea. He loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, which is this describes it very carefully. Now, I want you to be clear. There is no way that we can really describe God. We are human beings in a different world completely. Let me give you an example. Suppose for a moment, and by the way, as some of you know, maybe all of you, I was born and raised in South Africa. Now, that's not in the heart of the equatorial jungles, although people often say, do you have lions uh, where you are? Yes, we do. In game parks, okay? <laughs> In fact, when my wife Linda went with me and we landed in Johannesburg, she looked at the city. She said, this looks just like New York City. Well, yes, echoes of New York City. But I, I lived in Africa. And uh, if you end up yourself in the midst of an equatorial jungle and you find there a tribe, a primitive hunter-gatherer tribe that has never been contacted, they've never heard of civilization. Now, you're a linguist, let's just say. And you spend a year or two listening, learning, observing, and eventually after time, you can begin to communicate. And then they ask you this question. You've been here with us for a couple of years. You understand and you know what we're doing. You know our way of life. Tell us about your world. Now here's my question. How are you going to describe to these people skyscrapers? How are you going to describe to them shopping centers, computers, camcorders, MP3 players, Television. How do you explain to these people who have never seen what these things are? In a simple word, it is what? Impossible. You cannot do that. Now, that's a little illustration. God is in, a, in, in that sense in so distant in, for us to understand. There is really no way we can properly use human language to describe God. So what we do? We use analogies. For example, for example, I want to share a few analogies with you right here. Let's go to the first one in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Remember, we're making comparisons. Analogies are always fraught with danger because, as they say, even parables, they say, don't walk on all fours, which simply means don't take every aspect of it literally. It's to get a point across. So the first analogy I would suggest comes from Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Matthew 19, verse 26, where the disciples have just asked Jesus a question because they thought that wealth was an evidence of God's blessing, per se. And Jesus said that it's hard for a rich man to go into heaven. Verse 25, who then can be saved? Those five words they ask. And now verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but what? With God, all things are possible. I'd like to use the word infinite here. All things are possible with God. When I say infinite, let me illustrate that. The richest man in the world for 12 consecutive years listed in Forbes magazine is guess who? Bill Gates. Okay? Bill Gates and his fortune went down not too long ago. He lost, I believe, two-thirds of what he had. But still, let me describe how wealthy Bill Gates is. If you were Bill Gates... And if you lived to the age of 75, from the day you were born until the day you die, and if you spend a minimum of a million U.S. dollars per day, every day, for 75 years, you would still land up with $300 million left. Did you get that? 
a million dollars per day, every day, for 75 years, and you still have 300 million for your funeral. That gives you an idea of how much value, how much, what's Bill Gates' net worth currently after he had lost, okay, quite a bit of money. Now you think infinitely. Oh, God is infinitely beyond that. Years ago when I was a, a, a student in college, I, I used to play chess. It was a time that uh, Bobby Fischer was playing against whoever that uh, Soviet guy was. I'm not sure. Anyway, but they were playing. And so we got interested and I learned how to play. Now, I'm not recommending you play it. It takes a lot of time. No. But so we were playing. But it's like, whoa, it can boggle the mind. By the time you get to the fourth move, there are nine million options. And when you get to, notice when you get, you play a 40 game move, guess how many options you have available? And I read this to you. <laughs> it's so huge. 25 times 10 to the 155th power. Now you might have heard that some of the chess players actually lose their minds. It's incredible. Talk about infinity. And of course you think about God is so much Way beyond that. And these players can actually figure out all kinds of moves. Unbelievable. Let's go to a second example, an analogy. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 24. The first one, God is infinite. We won't have time to talk about all of them. These are just a few examples of the kind of God we serve. Talking about His incredible transcendence. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 24. God is speaking. Can anyone hide himself in secret places? Shall I not see him? Says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. We sometimes use the word omnipresent. That God is everywhere all at any moment, all of the time. Everywhere. What does that mean? Think about our planet earth. More than a million of planet Earths can fit into the volume of the sun. Correct? Okay. The sun is a star. How many stars do you believe, or do you know, can be seen according to the latest information? Australians have come up with this. How many stars can currently be seen through telescopes? 70,000 million million million. That's 70 sextillion, or 7, with 22 zeros behind that. Now, what does that mean? That, that's what they can see, by the way. That's what they can see. That is 10 times more, listen to this, 10 times more than every grain of sand on all the beaches and all the deserts on planet Earth. To give you an idea of the immensity of the universe, of what they can currently see only, 70 sextillion. Unbelievable. And yet, and yet, taking into account, God is everywhere. Unbelievable. And, and not only that, go to Psalm 147. 147, incredible. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5. And I've got to share with you something here. Psalm 147, 4 and 5. You see, some... Uh, I won't tell you when because this might give away my wife's age, but when she turned a certain, uh, she turned a certain landmark age, whatever that may be, and it could be anything, you know, okay. <laughs> when she turned a certain landmark age, as a gift to her, I happened to hear about this star registry. 
You might have heard of it. So I paid $50 and they took one of the, the stars of these millions or billions and then they renamed it from whatever number it was, you know, it was just called number so and so and so. They renamed it Linda Ray Dupre. So there is a star right now that at least we human beings know has a name, Linda Ray Dupre. Name for my wife, cost me 50 bucks. And she, she has the big certificate there that she, you know. Okay, now look at one, Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the numbers of the stars and does what? He calls them all by name. And I'd like to think that God might, in His grace, call that one star Linda Ray Dupre. She's my star. But you know, I thought about this. If God can call those stars by name, let's just say He can speak fast. You know, like you can say Mars and Venus and Mercury. You can name two per second. Two per second. And He names all the stars that we can see. Do you know how long it'll take? Just to name the stars. I calculated this. You're thinking, why did He do this? Well, I just it boggles the mind. One thousand million million years just to name the stars. At two per second. <laughs> and those are the ones that we can see through our telescopes. Unbelievable. Tremendous. Oh, incredible. Look at verse 5. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Mighty in power, we sometimes use the word omnipotent. And there are several Psalms that talk about God's great power. And then it says, His understanding is infinite. Omniscient. Omniscient. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. Unbelievable. Go with me one more time. I mentioned at the beginning, Psalm 19, verse 1. I want us to look at that verse because this is the verse that to some degree has brought about a radical change in the thinking of none other than the foremost atheistic philosopher, Anthony Flew. Look, look at it. He, he admits that. He says, and he believes, as I said, in God, not the Christian God, but a deistic God, a God who sets the world going and leaves it kind of the clockmaker God, a distant God. Okay, notice Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. In simple terms, if you are open-minded, as Anthony Flew says, after more than 50 years, and, he, and as I mentioned, he was raised by, in a Methodist home. His father was a Methodist pastor. But he became an atheist at 15 years of age. And now at 81, he says, I cannot deny it. Only a superintelligence could have done what we see. Unbelievable. Yes, it is believable. It's the God of the Bible. We don't have time to go to all the other characteristics of God, of His transcendence, His immutability, and other things that you know about. But I want to move now into a different aspect. So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Because you see, yes, Anthony Flew does quote-unquote, believe in a God, but he says it's the distant God, a God that is uninvolved in human life. And we're not talking about that God. We're talking about this God here in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay, so there are certain mysteries that we don't understand. How can God know the number of the stars and call them by their name? Things that we cannot understand. But, there's an, I love that short word, B-U-T. Those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. 
So God wants to communicate. He wants us to understand. And there is sufficient information. Yes, there's information in general revelation out there, which is why Anthony Flew changed his mind. And there's also more information that we get when we go to the Bible. We call this special revelation. What kind of a God is He personally involved in our lives? Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Let's see what kind of a God this is. How does God describe Himself? A little background, by the way. Moses said, Lord, reveal Your glory to me. Let me see You. And how does God reveal His glory? By telling Him what kind of a God He is. Very interesting. Go to chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before Him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, and by by the way, you'll notice in your Bibles, just look carefully, it has capital L, capital small O-R-D. Did you notice that? All capitals, and that is the, the translators, when they translate the Bible, they don't put the word Jehovah or Yahweh there, except in a few translations like the Jerusalem Bible, the New Jerusalem Bible. Most Bibles never put God's name there. It's an ancient tradition, by the way, that comes from the Jews never wanting to even write out the name of God. They just put the letters Y-H-W-H so that nobody could even accidentally take God's name in vain. That's how sacred they held God's name. So even here in the translation, few translations ever have Jehovah or Yahweh. By the way, nobody really knows for sure what God's name is because they left the, they left the vowels out for so many centuries that nobody remembered what His name really was. So they only have the vowel, uh, the consonant, sorry. Because the vowels are left out. And the scholars call it the tetragrammaton, the four letters. <laughs> so if people say, oh, it's Jehovah or it's Yahweh, no one really knows. Okay? We just know. So the translators put the Lord. That's the personal name of God. Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever the best we can come up with. The Lord God. Now here it describes Him. Merciful and gracious. Or compassionate and gracious. Long-suffering. Another word is, another way to describe this is slow to anger and abounding in goodness and truth or faithfulness. You can trust God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, we'll come to it later on, is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. My wife and I love that verse because it says... God is faithful. You can trust God. He will come through. He is abounding in goodness and truth. Verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands. Stop there. Interesting. For thousands. If you compare that with Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Put it in parentheses there. I want you to read it later on. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, He keeps mercy for thousands of generations. Beautiful. And it's a nice comparison here. And that's the better interpretation here. For thousands of generations. So keep that in mind. Let's go back to verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands of generations. That's the kind of loving God He is. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In simple terms, God is not just a God of love, a God of forgiveness, but He is also a God of justice. There comes a time, unfortunately, when God has to take action. And by the way, I notice people love justice when it's in their favor. Have you noticed that? I just watched something on television recently. Uh, it was a, a, a news clip. And it was a lady who said he should be brought to justice. Her husband was shot by a policeman on the ground. You, you might have seen that story. And she said he must be brought to justice. 
We all desire justice when it's in our favor. Isn't that true? This is the kind of God we serve. He will provide the justice. All we have to do is come to Him, confess our sins, accept Jesus Christ. He will provide justice. But we still live in a world that causes a lot of confusion for people. They say, but if God is good, why all the suffering? Now, by the way, we know, we know, we know don't, don't get around this. Sometimes the reason we suffer is because of the things we do. Isn't that true? Crazy things. I'm talking about crazy things now. I'm talking about things like bungee jumping. Okay? Now, it's not too crazy if you're over an ocean, except you do hit it pretty hard. But we do crazy things in our lives. And as a result, we sometimes suffer. And not just that crazy. The kinds of things we put in our stomachs is another crazy thing. Some of the things we eat... Because our taste buds, and later on we try to sleep and we have nightmares. We say, boy, why did I have that? And it's simply because of what we put in our bodies. Some of the things we suffer from are our own choices. But you know what? Some of the things are not our choice. Sometimes we look around at others and we say, Lord, why are the wicked prospering? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 73. Because this is an ancient question that confused, confounded, and really brought concern to the psalmist. Psalm 73 when he looked at how the wicked were, suffer, were, were prospering and how violent they were against others, he was really concerned. Psalm 73 verse 3 says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Therefore pride serves as... Verse 6, sorry, go to verse 6. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Verse 7, Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. Go down to verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly. He's complaining to God. They're ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. <laughs> Make sense? Yes, I don't understand. Why do these people who are violent and wicked, why are they having all the success? But notice the next verse. Don't miss the next verse. This is what the psalmist says. Until... He said, it was too painful for me until I went where? I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end or their destiny. Folks, when we come to God's house, to His sanctuary, we study, we understand, it begins to make sense. We cannot simply live out there on our own. It, things will not make sense unless we are willing to come to God and to listen to Him. Let me share with you a story, fascinating one. Somebody sent this to me. He went, uh, the story was of a man who went to the barber, had his hair cut, and while he was cutting his hair, they began talking. Have you, I enjoy going to the barber. It's kind of a downtime. You can sit and chat. And the barber turned to him and said, you talking about God? Uh, I don't believe God exists. Why not? Well, if God existed, why is all the suffering? Why all the heartache? Why the abandoned kids? Why all the pain? And this person just kept quiet. He was a believer in God. He didn't say a word. He didn't want to get into an argument. Best not to do that. But after he left, he walked outside and he found one man on the street, disheveled, long, unkempt, matted hair, untrimmed beard, and he this man walked back into the barber shop and said, you know what, I just concluded, barbers don't exist. And the barber looked at him and said, what do you mean, I just cut your hair, look, look how nice you look. And he said, hold on, and of course, here was the specimen. He said, look, if barbers existed, there would be no unkempt people with hair untrimmed and so forth. And the barber said, look, I do exist. The problem is, they don't come to me. 
Need I say more? And the man said, that's exactly the problem. The reason, one of the main reasons for the pain we have is because people don't come to God. Go to verse 28. There is the answer. The end of that psalm. We're in that psalm. Look at verse 28. Said beautifully there. But it is good for me to draw where? Near to God. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have a one line phrase I'd like you to see if you can remember. We'll see if we can get it on the screen. If not, it's simply this. To know God, don't say no to God. To know God, don't say no to God. You want to say that with me? To know God, don't say no to God. Simple, short sentence. To know God, don't say no to God. Look at the rest of that verse now. Verse 28. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. If you want to know God, say yes to God. Okay? Very simple phrase. Now, I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 3. Thanks. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. We want to know God. Let's go and look at His name briefly here. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God has a personal name. When Moses was going to, God called Moses to rescue the people from slavery. Moses said, if they say, who, who is this God? God says, I'll tell you who I am. Moses, uh, listen carefully, Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. What kind of a name is that? Hold on, Moses. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. And of course it continues, The Lord God of your fathers in uh, the rest of the verse there. I am. That means I am the ever-present one. I am the one who will protect you, provide for you. Now go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, because this is a very, very well-known phrase, because this is the God we serve. The great I am. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 also uses a phrase about Jehovah, Yahweh. That's a well-known phrase, the one that the Jews often quote. They call it the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? Is one. And then the question is, hey, why is it that Christians believe in a trinity? Is that a pagan concept? Hold on. Fascinating. And you know, this is what's so exciting about studying the word deeply. That word one is the same word that is found in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. And Adam and Eve, what, what happens? The two shall become what? One. The two shall be one flesh. Interesting. Same word. Okay? That's the word. The two shall become one flesh. If two people can be one, same one, <laughs> It's, it's a unique word for one. It's a word that includes more than one being. Two beings or more can become one. Incidentally, in case you didn't know, Moses did have another word available for the word one. Okay, The one that's used here for the scholars is echad. That's the one that includes more than one. There's another word that Moses could have used. Okay, Yahiv. Yahiv means only, unique, none other. He didn't use only unique, none other. Moses used the word for one that included more than one. Interesting. Like a husband and a wife. So implicit in this statement is the fact that we serve a triunity. And of course you find that in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, chapter 1 verse 26, you know the passage so well, let us make man in what? Our image. 
Go with me now to John chapter 1. Got a couple more New Testament passages before we end today. John chapter 1, when it says, Let us make man in our image, John 1 brings out a truth as to who was also involved. Now Genesis 1 verse 3 says, The Spirit of God moved across the waters. We know that the Spirit of God was involved. But here in John 1, 1, 2 and 3, it talks about the Word. And the Word was made flesh. Now, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is this Word? Hold on. All things were made by Him. Go to verse 3. Through Him and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Go to verse 14. And the Word became what? Flesh. Who became flesh? It was Jesus. We know it was Jesus. In fact, later on, when Jesus claimed to be God in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, the Jews took up rocks to stone him. Why? Because to call yourself God was blasphemy. And the Jews wanted to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. As we study the scriptures carefully, we dig deeper, we find out that indeed even the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5 is called God. So we know that even though we cannot understand it, we cannot describe it. There's no way to capture it. Now, if you want to go simplistically, but it's, it's a poor illustration, an egg. Think of an egg, for example. An egg is one thing, right? How many parts to the egg? Three parts, that's right. There's the shell, there's the white, and there's the yolk. Very simplistic illustration. Now, don't confuse that with God. The idea is you can have three in one in a certain sense. And the word one is used for multiplicity, the Lord our God is one. The best evidence for the Trinity is in Matthew 28 verse 19. Our last text I want to share with you here. Matthew 28 verse 19. Beautiful passage where Jesus is about to leave and He is giving the disciples a final charge. And here He describes and He says to them what you should do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now notice carefully. Baptizing them in the name. Singular. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Folks, Christians, as Christians, we serve one God, even though there are three beings. It's difficult to describe in human terms. It is so beyond us, but we accept that truth, even though we can't fully understand it. Just as a husband and a wife, two become one, but they are still separate individuals. We accept that, don't we? That's right. And so that's the best way I can describe that. Let me share a short story as we end. It was January 1982. Freezing cold on the East Coast. Of course, you folk might never understand that. But uh, this side of the world, I know. <laughs> Freezing cold. Icy. One of the worst winters. Flight 90, Air Florida. Was, uh, they de-iced it. And then the runway was kind of a very busy, a lot of planes. So they sat on the runway for 49 minutes. And by the time they were ready to take off at 3.59 p.m., Ice had formed on those airfoils on the airplane. They taxied down the runway for a half mile longer trying to get airborne. They did at 3.59 p.m. And after two minutes of flight, Flight 90 crashed into the 14th Street Bridge across the Potomac River. The front of the plane went down immediately. The tail broke off. Four or five people were killed on the bridge. And of the 79 people on board, six survivors were left clinging to the tail section. 
It was blizzardous days, terrible days. The roads were clogged. The government offices had been closed. The only rescue vehicle that arrived was a helicopter. One helicopter for those six people. Six people. One of them was one of the flight attendants. And so as they arrived, a pilot by the name of Donald Usher and his paramedic, Gene Winslow, they got there and they noticed, they, they dropped the line down and they, the guy who got it, he took it and he passed it to the next person. And they came back, they rescued the person, took him to shore and, they, and he kept repeatedly, one gentleman by the name of Arland Williams kept passing the line to, to others. When they came back for their last trip to pick up Arland Williams, he and the tail section had disappeared below the icy waters. As I think about that story, it makes me realize that in a certain sense, we are in that same icy river. And by the way, the coroner's report later on, they, they recovered all the bodies, the 73 in the plane and Arlen Williams' body. The coroner's report said that the only person who died from drowning was Arlen Williams. The rest of them had all perished the moment the crash happened. Arlen Williams gave his life to save his fellow passengers that he didn't even really know. When I think of that story, an incredible example of what Jesus did for us. And you know what they did? They went and renamed the 14th Street Bridge. It is now called the Arland D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge. Think of that story. I say, wow, what an incredible picture of Jesus here amongst us, survivors in this frozen mess of planet Earth. And what's interesting is that there were three individuals working together. There was the pilot, there was the paramedic, and Arlen Williams who, who was there in that frozen river. And in a certain sense, it's an incredible picture of the Father, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son here on planet Earth, willing to die for you, willing to die for me. And what's more interesting, in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus even says, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Because, folks, Jesus is the bridge between earth and heaven. Jesus came to die for you, for me. What a wonderful story. Arland Williams' story makes me think in a little way what Jesus did for you, what He did for me. Let me ask you a question before we end. Who of you would like to raise your hand and simply say, Lord... Thank you for Jesus. Let me see your hands. I want to pray for you. Keep your hands up. Thank you, Father, for those many hands. We're saying thank you to Jesus. Thank you for being willing to come and die to save our lives. In the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.